0: Which brings us to today. And wow, what a passage we've got today. I got no cute introduction or story or anything. We just got a lot of Bible to cover today. Um, This very well could have been three messages, but it's one. Just because the flow of thought goes together so well, we've got a lot of ground to cover. So, with that being said, we are going to read today Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. And we're going to cover 12 through 22 today um, and a lot of other passages and scriptures that are going to be packed in there. So if you would stand as we prepare for the reading of God's Word, what an incredible, awesome thing to say this morning. That We're about to hear the very words of God, not the voice of God, it's my voice, but these are the very words of God. From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them... and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Let me pray. God, it is awesome to hear Your Word. And I pray that as we look at what we're looking at this morning, God, that Your Spirit would teach us, instruct us, convict us, and maybe save us, God. It is Your Word, it is Your Gospel that is the power unto salvation for those who believe. So open eyes, open hearts change lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, we saw last week, when we looked at verses 1 through 11, that things are changing. Things are happening around the ministry of the King. And remember, Matthew's goal is to present... Jesus as the king. And so we saw that John and his ministry and what was happening there. We saw Jesus being baptized and then we saw Jesus cast out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by the devil. So he goes from this public proclamation of his faith. uh, Faith is a terrible word there. A public proclamation of who he is. As the dove descends, heaven's open and the voice comes down, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And he's cast directly out into the wilderness to have a one-on-one with Satan. Today, we're going to see the king move from his baptism and then from his temptation into the early stages of his ministry. We've got three points this morning. We've got the king's movement, the king's message and the king's messenger. Those will be our application points as well, by the way, just so you know. But that's what we're going to follow today as we look at verses 12 through 22. So, verse 12 says, Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Now, that may seem innocuous. That may seem like there's not much there, but there's a lot to cover here. And not necessarily just in the verse, but in what happened between verses 11 and 12. It's important to know a couple of things here. First, there's about a one-year gap between verses 11 and 12. And Matthew don't tell you that because Matthew just wants you to know what the king is doing and what the king is doing to make himself more kingly. Um, So Matthew really doesn't pay much attention to the times of Jesus' life that don't contribute to the king theme. Does that mean that he doesn't care or doesn't think these things are important? No. But it does mean that they don't accomplish what Matthew's trying to do with his narrative. So he goes ahead a year in a sentence and he wants to get to the next kingly segment of what he wants to detail. Now the other thing to note here is that Matthew also throws some things in later that may have happened in that time frame. Matthew's operating more kind of as a stream of thought or stream of consciousness typewriter. Type of writer? Not typewriter. Um, But it's not haphazard. We'll see things later in his account that actually happened in this one-year gap that he passes over. But just just so you know that, Matthew's not in order necessarily. The things you see in Matthew aren't in time order necessarily. Actually, we're going to look at something today that Matthew covers in chapter 14. So just so you know that. um, And actually, I think I said this to some of you. I don't know if I said it publicly or to everybody. Luke is the only gospel writer who says, I've I tried to set these things out in order. So Luke is chronological. If you're looking for a chronological gospel, it's Luke. It's not Matthew. But it's very important that you know that. Especially in this one-year gap. So this one-year gap is detailed very well in John's gospel in the first four chapters. So the first four chapters of John cover this year that Matthew skips between verses 11 and 12. And it's going to be important that we know some of this stuff in the first year so that we can have a better perspective of some of the things from our passage today. So with that being said, we're going to do a quick run-through of what we see in John 1-4 through that transpired in Matthew's missing year. Okay, So we're going to jump to John. If you want to turn to John, that's fine. I'll have some of the verses up here, but not all of them. Um, John 1 verses 19-51 through give us details of four days in a row within that year. And the first day John the Baptist is telling the priests and Levites that there is one who is in their midst who is the coming Messiah. And then the next day in verses 29 through 34 of John 1, John explicitly says that Jesus whom he had baptized is that Messiah. So one day he says there's somebody here that is the Messiah, and then the next day he says Jesus is that Messiah. And then the next day after that, in verses 35 through 42 of John 1, John announces to two of his disciples that Jesus, who was walking by, was the Lamb of God. And those two disciples start following Jesus. Jesus asks them what they want. They ask Him where He's staying and He invites them to come and see. Andrew is revealed as one of those two disciples. Okay, Now... It doesn't name the other disciple that heard this and saw this but it would make sense that it's John because a lot of times uh, writers of that time would identify themselves without identifying themselves. So it makes sense that it was Andrew and John that were with John the Baptist. Not John the Baptist with John the Baptist. John the Apostle, who would be the Apostle, with John the Baptist. So Andrew and John, we believe, were the two disciples who left John, who left following John the Baptist and went after Jesus that day. And it says that Andrew goes and finds his brother, a guy named Simon, who we know as Peter, right? And what Andrew tells Peter is, we have found the Christ. And you can see this all in John 1. And so these three guys, at least, spend the rest of that day with Jesus. And then on the fourth day mentioned in John 1, Jesus goes from Bethany, where all of this had happened, to Galilee. And he finds a guy, Jesus does, named Philip, whom he bids to come follow him. Philip goes and finds a guy named Nathanael and says in John one forty five, I think I've got this up here, yeah. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And I love Nathanael's response in verse 46. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Which this just shows the true nature of how folks viewed people from Nazareth. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. But he comes and Jesus says some things that caused Nathanael to say in verse 49. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus says you'll see much more than that, more than what you've seen today. And then the chapter, chapter 1 ends. And then chapter 2 details the wedding where Jesus turns water into wine. Most of you are probably familiar with that parable. or a parable, It's not a parable, that historical account. And the text tells us why Jesus did this miracle. John 2.11, this, the first of His signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and He manifested His glory, and His disciples believed in Him. So how many disciples are we talking about at this point? we got Andrew, John, Peter, Nathaniel, and Philip. There's probably about five of them with Him right now at this this wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now, I'm going to jump forward here real quick. Keep in mind, and we'll, we'll reference this map several times today, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Jericho, that area down there, okay? Now Cana is way up north there, okay? Can you see Cana up there near the five, near the sea? That's the Sea of Galilee up there, okay? So we've got some movement here. And it's important to understand what's going on and where they're at because that's going to help set the stage uh, for what's going on here. So you've got Jerusalem down there in the south, and you've got movement between Jerusalem and Galilee, Canaan, Nazareth, Capernaum, all those are in the region of Galilee. Okay, so when you set these things historically and when you set these things geographically, it's important to know where they're at and what's going on. So now they're in Cana of Galilee, up north, up there. Okay, and that's where he manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Now, chapter 2, verse 12 says that after Jesus, his mother, his brothers, and his new disciples who were starting to believe on him went to Capernaum, which is right up there at the top of the lake, where they stayed for a few days. Chapter 2 then details Jesus going to Jerusalem for the Passover. So now we're back down south in chapter 2 of John. Okay, I thought I saw somebody. So they go to Jerusalem for the Passover because when the Passover happened, everybody, every Jew went to Jerusalem. So they go to Jerusalem for the Passover where he promptly goes into the temple and drives out the animal sellers and money changers with a whip of cords, pouring out coins and turning over tables. So this is kind of his introduction to the religious elites, right? Now note this section of John 2 that follows all of this, which is John 2, Verses 23 through 35. Let me get back there. i got to find my place. There we go. Now when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in His name when they saw the signs that He was doing. But Jesus on His part did not entrust Himself to them because He knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for He Himself knew what was in man. Now that's huge. Okay. Here He is in Jerusalem, the center of of the Jewish religious universe. And Jesus is raging against the machine and is not entrusting Himself to any of the people there. Now if you were a Jew and you wanted to preach the Jewish gospel and you wanted to introduce the Jewish God to people, Jerusalem is where you would want to be. That was the center of Jewish religious life. But Jesus is in Jerusalem and He's not entrusting Himself to the people there. It says, He knew all people and He knew what was in man. Now keep that in mind as we proceed. John 3, you're probably very familiar with John 3. John 3 is about a nighttime covert conversation that Jesus has with a guy named Nicodemus. A Pharisee who sneaks and talks to Jesus for fear of the prominent Jews who would have already said that they don't like this rowdy new rabbi. Then the end of chapter 3 says that Jesus and His disciples then went into the Judean countryside where they were baptizing people. That would have been the area around Jerusalem down there. John the Baptist was close by there too and makes a statement when asked if he was upset that Jesus was baptizing more than him. John 3, 27-30. We're still in John. John 3. And so John answered, "...a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. You yourselves bear, bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before Him." The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now remember, John was wildly popular. Everybody from Jerusalem and Judea and all the surrounding countries were coming out into the wilderness to be baptized by John. But they're saying here that Jesus is even more popular than John down here in Jerusalem and Judea. even He turned the money tables over in the temple and people are kind of shaking their fists at him. But he's growing in popularity. And John says, He must increase, but I must decrease. So there's something going on here. John says that Jesus has come and that means that his time, John's time, is passing. Because this is what he had come to do. He had come to prepare the way for Jesus' coming and Jesus' ministry. And now it's happening. And now look at the beginning of John 4, verses 1 through 3. And when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus Himself did not baptize, but only His disciples, He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Okay? So, the Pharisees get wind of Jesus' rising popularity As he is out in the area outside of Jerusalem making disciples and having them baptized. again, why wasn't he baptizing people? I don't know. Could you imagine being baptized by Jesus? You were baptized by Jesus if you're a Christian, but we'll get back to that later. So his popularity is rising. He left the area around Jerusalem and headed back up toward Galilee. And then what follows in chapter 4 is the story of the woman at the well in Samaria. Now this is my problem with this map and I couldn't find a better one. But if you look at this, they've got the motion from 3 up to 4 and 5 on the eastern side of the Jordan, which is the way that most Jews would have taken because they would not have gone through Samaria, which is I don't know if you can see Samaria, Salim, Sychar. Jews hated Samaritans. So they would go the extra distance to go around and go up to Cana if they were going to Cana because they hated Samaritans. Okay. They would have refused to go through Samaria. Samaritans were half breeds, okay? They were the poorest and the worst of the Jews that got left from the deportation to Assyria, and then the Assyrians carted in people from outside, and the Jews intermarried with them, so they were mixed race. They weren't pure blood Jews, and Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. But now watch this. John 4 4 says, and he had to pass through Samaria. Talking about Jesus as He's going back up north. Well, no, He didn't have to. He could have went like the other Jews around so that He didn't go through Samaria. But He had to pass through Samaria. And when we see the woman at the well and so many others believe on Him there, we see why He had to pass through Samaria. And we don't have a lot of time to spend there. And then near the end of John 4, it says, He left the Samaria area, which is fun to say, the Samaria area. And left for Galilee. And verse 45 says, So when He came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed Him, having seen all that He had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. And then we see Jesus, heal an official son, which John says in verse 454, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when He had come from Judea to Galilee. So now we're back up in Galilee, near the Sea of Galilee, Cana, Nazareth, in that area. Which brings us to our passage today. So all that happened between verses 11 and 12. And so now we're back in our passage, kind of. So remember what our verse said today. Now when, the, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Now again, look here. Galilee's a mountainous region up there in the north of Israel... Now if you can reach back that far in our message on the history of the Old Testament, we said that the nation of Israel had divided into two nations after the death of Solomon. The northern kingdom was called Israel and consisted of ten tribes. It was a big chunk of land. The southern kingdom was called Judah and consisted of two and a half tribes. Smaller chunk of land, but it had Jerusalem in it. After both kingdoms were sent into exile, the north by Assyria in 722 BC and the south by Babylon in 586 BC, the land was populated by outsiders brought in by the conquering kingdoms. The northern kingdom of Israel was never reestablished. Never. The northern ten tribes were simply scattered and we considered them the lost tribes of Israel. The southern kingdom did have people come back. We saw that in Ezra and Nehemiah. And Jerusalem became the center of Jewish life and worship again. Well, the northern part of the nation would be ruled over by different rulers, but the population was pretty diverse. So in the south, you had Jerusalem and you had a lot of Jews, a a whole lot of pure-blood Jews in the south, but not in the north. You had a lot of mixed-breed Jews and Gentiles intermingled, and you had a lot of Gentiles, period. People from all over the known world living in the Galilee region. Galilee was very diverse and this is where Jesus withdrew to. And when did He withdraw there? When He heard that John had been arrested. What's that mean? We barely saw that in our quick trek through the Gospel of John, the Apostle. Well, quickly, Luke gives us two verses of explanation. Since he's the quickest, we're going to use him this morning to tell what happened with John getting arrested. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So Herod, not the same Herod that wanted to kill Jesus. You want to get into a mess? Start looking at the Herod family. Oh my word. It's confusion. Everybody's named Herod. Okay? There's two Philips and there's multiple Herods and there's multiple Herodias's and you're going, who's who? And they're marrying cousins and brothers and sisters. It's a mess. Okay? But this is not the Herod that wanted to kill Jesus, but one of his sons. That Herod was reproved by John the Baptist for taking Herodias as his wife. Herodias had been Herod's brother's wife. Again, I told you they're a mess. And for all the evil things that he had done. So it wasn't just for that, but John was just honest. Herod, you're a jerk. Herod, you didn't floss this morning. That, that wasn't evil, but he, he probably would have told him that. Okay? So that's what's going on here. Now, again, we'll see this account in Matthew 14 when we get there in several months. But anyway, or maybe a year or more. But anyway, when John got put into prison, Jesus withdrew into Galilee. So it would make sense he's probably not wanting to get arrested too because he was even more popular than John. So he was probably going into Galilee to get away from Herod, right? Nope. Actually, Galilee was in Herod's jurisdiction. Jesus would have had to go south to get out of Herod's land. But remember, the Pharisees are hopping mad at him down there for cleansing the temple and being too popular, right? So does he not go south to make sure he doesn't get in trouble with them? Hardly. Okay, Jesus is going to be the hardest on the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That's why they're Sadducee, Okay, I will use that joke as often as I can. <laughs> Let me just say this. Jesus was not afraid of Herod. And He wasn't afraid of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So why did He withdraw to Galilee as He was beginning His ministry? Because like everything else, God had a plan. Chapter 4 verses 13 through 16. Back in Matthew now. Okay, we're back in Matthew. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Okay, so there is a lot here. So Nazareth is in Galilee, and that's where Jesus had grown up. But He leaves Nazareth, which was a tiny, despised place. And He goes to live in Capernaum by the sea. Again, just so that you can see it. Nazareth is right there near the five, Cain and Nazareth. And He goes up to Capernaum. Literally, He would have went down because the elevation would have went down. Okay, So He leaves Nazareth, and He goes to Capernaum. Now note, he wasn't visiting here. He was going to live there. This would be Jesus' town. Capernaum was a very well-established town just on the lake. And you see that big lake. We call it the Sea of Galilee. You'll see it called the Sea of Kinnereth or the Gennesaret Sea. Capernaum was a bustling town with established industry. They had fishing because they had this big lake. this big lake there. They even had a garrison of Roman soldiers there. And now while not as big as a, or fancy as, say, Jerusalem, Capernaum was a crossroads town. Anybody know any crossroads towns around here? Crossroads Mall, maybe? Huh? Beckley is a crossroads town, right? You got I-77 going up north and south. You got I-64 coming from the east and they join together and run for a little while. We're a crossroads town. That's a lot like what Capernaum was. Okay? Because all of the trade routes went east and west through Galilee, and they went north and south through Galilee. So if you look at Galilee, it is situated perfectly to be right in the crossroads of the major trade routes of the world. This is where Jesus puts down His anchor. This is where Jesus sets up shop. It's a good position to see people and goods of all kinds. The end of verse 13 points out that it's in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now these are two names of Jacob who would be Israel's sons, which would become tribes in the nation of Israel, Zebulun and Naphtali. We see this when the land was allotted to them in Joshua 19, way back in the Old Testament after the Exodus. Exodus. After the Israelites had taken control of the promised land and were divvying up the land between the tribes. This is the land, this is part of the land that Zebulun, the the tribe of Zebulun and the, the tribe of Naphtali got bordering up against each other there in Galilee. And Capernaum was right there. Okay, now verse 14 of Matthew 4 says, surprise, surprise, Jesus came here to fulfill prophecy seems like everything He does fulfills prophecy, doesn't it? Yes, is the answer to that. Remember I said Jesus wasn't running from Herod or the religious elite, but He headed here because God had a plan. Verse 14 says that plan is shown in Isaiah and this is the fulfillment of it. And then verses 15 and 16 paraphrase what Isaiah said. They say, "...the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light." And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now, let me show you what Isaiah was saying in his passage, which is Isaiah 9. Look at verses 1 and 2. First, "...but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations." The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. So it's easy to see what Matthew's saying here. He's, saying, he's talking about Jesus showing up in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. So Matthew's saying Jesus fulfills this prophecy. But what was Isaiah talking about? Because again, there's usually that immediate, partial, and future fulfillment of prophecy. We've seen that time and time again. Well, if you've been around the Christian faith for a good amount of time, you've probably heard Isaiah 9. You just may not remember it. So let's look at the next three verses in Isaiah 9. See if you recognize this. "'You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest.'" as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Everybody knows those verses, right? No. (laughs) Everybody's like, I've never read that in my life. (laughs) So, okay, so that don't help us. So what's going on in Isaiah 9? Why, Why should this be familiar? Well, let's look at the next two verses. It's a Christmas passage, right? We look at it every Christmas pretty much. It's a great Advent passage to study, by the way. If you want to prepare for Advent now, that would be a good couple of verses to study there. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 and to sit down and talk about with your family. So the Isaiah prophecy that talks about a child being born and a son being given is what we're looking at here. That's not what Matthew's looking at, but that's later on in the context. Well, who is that child and that son that we celebrate at Christmas? Now, that's a softball. That's, a, that's, a, that's an easy Sunday school. Jesus, right. Okay. So, tying that into the rest of the verses in Isaiah 9 that we just read, we see the former gloom, the contempt and the anguish of the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, which refers to them being deported by the Assyrians. That was back in 722. That happened up in that northern region. But that yoke is broken, and there is rejoicing and an end of war and battle. But we've already said that the northern kingdom of Israel never returned to the land. So when are they going to rejoice? They're going to rejoice when a child is born and a son is given. They're going to rejoice when Jesus comes. Now, Isaiah had no idea what he was saying there, but he was saying a lot. He was forecasting the arrival of Jesus more than 700 years later as Jesus settled in that very region that Isaiah was mentioning here. And Matthew, under the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit, says, This is that. This is what Isaiah meant, whether he knew it or not. So Jesus, settling in Capernaum, fulfilled this prophecy. And now with that in mind, look at the rest of what Matthew says happened in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali in the rest of his paraphrase of Isaiah's prophecy verses 15 and 16 again. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness, have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now by the way, the way of the sea was literally a name of a road in that area. The way of the sea. Beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Isaiah had surely seen the Gentiles settling there some, but he couldn't have known that the land would be full of Gentiles and Jews in Jesus' time. But verse 16 gives some hope for these Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them the light has dawned. Boy, howdy, has it. Were these people dwelling in darkness and in the region and shadow of death? Well, not knowing the God of the Jews, yes they were. But here comes Jesus who literally is the God of the Jews and He's living in their midst and His arrival brings a great light. Actually, He is a great light. He is the light of the world. And that light has dawned in Galilee of the Gentiles in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. And He comes a-preaching. 417. From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus' ministry begins in earnest as He settles in Capernaum. And while He has done signs and ministered to this point, it is now, as Jesus begins calling people to repentance, that He goes public and begins manifesting the glory of God to the world and not just to His disciples. His message is the same as John the Baptist's had been, but now it's not about a kingdom that is really close at hand, but rather standing in their very midst. And he's also gathering an army. Kind of. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Boy, what a relief it is for me to know that these guys had already spent some time with Jesus. I used to read this, I used to hear this preached, that when Jesus comes calling, you just got to drop everything and follow him. Look what Peter and Andrew did. They had spent a year with him. Okay? Whew. Whew. Good. Because I'm telling you, I, that used to heap condemnation. I used to think I need to leave my job and follow Jesus. Okay? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. I would say you probably don't, by the way. Jesus is walking by the sea and He sees a couple of familiar faces. He sees Andrew and Peter. Andrew was one of John the Baptist's disciples that had heard John call Jesus the Lamb of God. And he left John to follow Jesus. And then he went and found his brother Simon saying they had found the Messiah. Well, somewhere in the year that followed, Andrew and Simon went back to the family business, fishing. And now, Jesus walks by. It's almost like He knew where they would be. Hmm. And He says for them to follow Him. And He would switch them from fishing for fish to switching for men. And they drop their nets and they follow Him. As Jesus commences His public ministry, He goes to men He knows and who know Him and asks them, no, commands them to follow Him, to be with Him as He inaugurates His kingdom. And they say yes, and they leave it all behind. But they won't be alone with Him for long. Verses 21 and 22. And going on from there, He saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and He called them. Immediately they left the boat their father and followed Two more fellows sign on to this team too. We said earlier that John was probably the other disciple not named when John proclaimed Jesus as the Lamb of God. Well here, John is in the boat with his brother James and his dad Zebedee. That's all folks, Zebedee. I might use that every time too, just so you know. They are fishermen too, but they aren't fishing. Instead, they're mending their nets. You've got to do that if you're going to be a good fisherman. And Jesus calls them and they leave the boat and their father and follow Jesus. So John had been with Jesus, but there's no record of James having had been at this point. But I'm sure John had had plenty to say about what he had seen and heard about Jesus turning water to wine and healing a nobleman's son. And James would have been very familiar with this itinerant rabbi and his work up to this point. And know this, Jesus is a full-fledged rabbi. He's an itinerant rabbi. He walks around and he teaches his disciples as they are going. So when he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, as you are going, make disciples. He's saying, be like me, by the way. So James believes John and he goes with his brother to follow this king who would spend the next couple of years sharing and growing this glorious kingdom. So how do we apply all of this? it's a lot y'all we just covered a lot of stuff first remember we had we had three movements here we had three application points the king's movement the king's message and the king's messengers first the king's movement jesus was moving along the preordained path of god's plan to bring light to darkness Jesus was methodically placing, moving to place himself not in the religious center of his day, but in an area where the people would be open to a new message. These are Gentiles. They're like, yeah, tell us something new. We'll see that in Acts. So they would be open to a new message. So he's saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they would be open to seeing a new kingdom established. Not so much in Jerusalem, right? You're not going to march into Jerusalem and say, let's start a new kingdom. They're going, no, our kingdom is established and our king is God. And he's like, yeah, you're going to miss all this because you're not thinking right. You've got to change the way you think. He would, and he'll get plenty of resistance when he's down there ministering, by the way. But Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles, was in darkness when he brought the light of his life and kingdom to it. And is it not the same in our lives and in our time? Listen. The Bible makes no unclear statements when it comes to the condition of all of us before our conversion. John three, nineteen through twenty. Jesus says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Listen. All of us, by nature, love darkness and we recoil from the light. And you may say, well, John is saying that about lost people in John 3. Well, you were lost once if you're a believer now and you loved darkness at that time when you were lost. Maybe you're lost here today and you don't believe in Jesus and you say, well, I don't love darkness. Yes, you do. Otherwise, you would come to the light and have your deeds exposed. Well, not me. Or maybe if you're a believer, you're like, well, you know, I don't remember really even loving the darkness. The Scripture just said that you you did. And if you don't believe in Jesus, you do. You love darkness. And if you're a believer, you're like, well, not now. And you're right. Ephesians 5.8 says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, so walk as children of light. Listen, at one time, believer, you were darkness. You were darkness. You didn't just love darkness, you were darkness. But now you are light. Why? Because the light of the world, Jesus, moved towards you and saved you. Those who sat in darkness sat. They weren't moving. They sat in darkness and they've seen a great light. And God's plan was for that movement. His movement toward you. And it was His doing. His movement made it happen. 1 Peter 2, 9-10 through But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Mercy. His movement, His calling, His grace called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, all according to His plan, which was formed in eternity past. That's the king's movement. And let me tell you what if the king don't move to you, you're going to sit in darkness, you're going to love the darkness, and you're going to be darkness. That's what the scripture says. That's bad news. But the king also has a message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In his movement, Jesus was bringing the message of a new administration. His kingdom was coming before the very eyes of the people of that day and time. And as he inaugurated that kingdom, people had to think and live differently. And we've already talked about repentance when we looked at John's message, which was the same, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But Jesus was not just speaking a message. He was living it and calling others to live it as well. Once we were called out of darkness and into marvelous light, and once we are called into marvelous light, we are to be different. We are to live and to think and feel and move differently than we did before. Listen to me. If your life as a Christian doesn't look different than your life before your conversion, you're probably not a Christian. If you don't feel differently, if you don't think differently, if you don't act differently, you have not been converted. The call is to repent. To change the way you think, to change the way you live, it is a change of your very affections. What you used to hate, you now love. And what you used to love, you now hate. And if that has not happened in your life, you are in darkness. But if it has, and I'm not saying perfection here, but I'm saying what Don always says. I don't always want the right thing, but I want to always want the right thing. My affections have changed. If you fit in with the world the same way you used to before your conversion, you're probably not converted. It's about repentance. The Greek word is metanoia. It means to change your mind. Literally, out with the old, in with the new. I'm going to think different. And Paul commands us in Romans 12 to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. This is a new way of thinking which leads to a new way of living. And if there's no difference, there's no conversion. And I'm not talking about sinless perfection, but we have to be different than we were and continue to be different than we were. Growing in grace, growing toward the light more and more and more. Martin Luther said, the Christian life is a life of repentance. We have to not be What we were not before. Yes, we have to be what we were not before. Too many knots in that. Untie one of them. There we go. This is what repentance means leaving the past works and working new works. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6 9 through 11, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I am not trying to scare you this morning. I'm just asking you to be honest with yourself and the Word. Paul says we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling. This is not something to be taken lightly. Oh, yeah, I said a prayer once. I walked an aisle once. I signed a card once. I got baptized once. Those things do not save you. Only repentance saves you. We are saved by grace through faith, and that faith shows itself, James says, in works works that are different than what you used to walk in. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified and God did that those are passive verbs by the way those are you washed yourself no you sanctified yourself no you justified yourself no these things happen to you that's what the king did that's what the king's message brings is a message of change and you can't do what you used to do when that happens and that's the king's message repent Which leads us to the king's messengers. As we look at these four guys who were up in Cana of Galilee, Andrew and Peter, James and John, Jesus called and they left everything and they followed him. God's call is irresistible and it ensures the success of those He calls. I'm going to read that again. God's call is irresistible, and it ensures the success of those He calls. These are the king's messengers. We don't live in a world where these first four disciples decided not to follow Jesus. You say, well, could they have? No. You're like, well, I don't agree with that. I love you. We live in a world where these men dropped their nets, got out of their boats and followed Jesus. Because the king made a move toward them and the king brought a message to them and they responded. God's plan demanded that these four guys were to follow Him. Once the eyes of their hearts were opened to see the glory of the Messiah, they could not have chosen fish or nets or father over Jesus. We sang this morning, Jesus is better. And when we have our eyes opened to that, listen to me, nothing else will satisfy you. Peter, Andrew, and John had spent significant time with Jesus before and Jesus revealed His glory to them and they believed. And He did it so that they would believe. So when He called, they responded with joyful obedience. And it's the same for us. When our eyes are open to the glory, when the light dawns in our eyes, who sit in darkness, who are darkness, when our eyes are open to the glory of who Jesus is and what He has done, we will follow and obey. We will become his disciples. And these guys followed him ultimately to death. All of the apostles were killed for their faith except for John who died exiled on the Isle of Patmos. They tried to boil John in oil and he wouldn't die. And that's the life that Jesus gives to his messengers. The king gives his very life, his very grace, his very faith to his messengers. And these guys followed Him to death. And you know what? If you are His, you will too. Oh yeah, they're going to fail. They're going to flop along the way. But they will end up dying for their belief in and their love for Jesus. You see, when God calls His messengers, listen to me church, He guarantees that they will come. He guarantees their obedience and He guarantees their final outcome. There is no chance of failure for them or for us. You say, well, you don't know what I'm going through right now. I don't. But I know this, and I'm sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. We trust you, Jesus. We trust you, Jesus, with our lives. He began the work. He sustains the work and He will bring it to completion. So what do we do? We trust Him. Get your eyes off of yourself. Get your eyes off of your heart, your wicked, deceitful heart, even if you're saved. And get your eyes focused on Jesus who started this work and who will bring it to completion. The king's messengers will come and they will not fail. He has guaranteed that. And what is it? This is just all really the gospel, right? God moved and God planned to call us to Himself. He not only called us to repentance, but He empowered us to repent. And now we are the messengers of the kingdom who cannot and will not fail because we carry His very light into the darkness. There is no greater joy than to know that when I preach the gospel, it cannot fail. Does that mean that everybody I preach the gospel to is going to be saved? No. But it does guarantee that everybody I preach the gospel to that's going to be saved is going to be saved. It can't fail! This game is fixed! It's rigged and God wins! And He chooses us to be on His team. But maybe you're in darkness this morning. Or afternoon now, sorry. Maybe you're sitting in darkness. You're saying, well, what do I do? I implore you to look to the light. Admit your sin and your need for a Savior and look to the light of the world who is the living, interceding Christ, Jesus. Call out for forgiveness. Call out for salvation and watch Him do what only He can do as He draws you and as He empowers you to repent and to obey. Let's pray. God, your plan is perfect. Your Word tells us that as for our God, He sits in the heavens and He does what He pleases. And God, it has pleased you to draw us to yourself. It has pleased you to call us to repentance. It has pleased you to enlist us as your messengers. (laughs) And God, we shake our fist at this message sometimes. We say that God has no right. Or maybe God doesn't have the power. And this morning, you explode that myth. And you show us that the king's movement and the king's message draws the king's messengers and empowers them to live obediently. Thank you for your work. And God, if there is someone here who does not know this king, does not know this Jesus of whom we speak, by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, would you open their eyes, breathe life into them and grant them the gift of repentance and empower them to live the rest of their days for you as your messenger. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? It speaks to this very thought. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Stay if you can and eat with us though.